Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. How will the possible tax changes and the SECURE Act affect retirees and their beneficiaries? What is the best way to supersize your Roth IRA? Are qualified charitable distributions worth it? In this week's podcast, tax and retirement planning expert Ed Slott joins Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. to answer all these questions and more. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. With prospective tax changes on the horizon, is now the right time to start gifting assets and pursuing other such strategies? Joining me to discuss that topic is tax and retirement planning expert Ed Slott. Ed, thank you so much for being here. Great to be back with you, Christine. Thanks. It's great to have you here. I'd like to start by talking about where we are with prospective changes to the tax code under the new administration. Can you outline some of the proposals under consideration and sort of where they are in the pipeline? Well, the big items, and again, the key word is proposals, but you have to know about that to plan because let's look at the SECURE Act that happened a few years ago. That gave us 11 days to plan. If you remember, that was enacted, I think, on on December 20th, and you had 11 days to scurry around and plan So, because it was effective January 1st. So we don't even know where these proposals are going. Uh, First thing, if I was a betting man, not that I would go to Las Vegas, but if I was a betting man, uh, the one of the proposals said some of these changes may be retroactive back to April. I don't think that's going to happen. I would bet heavily against that because we're too far into the year. And it just has a sour taste to change the rules where people already made decisions to go retroactive. I don't think we'll see that. So anything we're talking about now, I think if it does happen, it's going to be effective January 1st. So it's a good time to have this discussion, be aware of the issues, because you do have time to plan if you want to make plans. So some of the things they're talking about, basically income tax, capital gains, and estate and gift tax are the big issues, where all the big money is. So the income tax, uh, maybe they want to raise the rates on people that make $400,000 or more, but there's all kinds of of permutations to that. We don't really know where that's going to go. And it may even uh, affect people that are under $400,000, but they're over uh, 400000 for one year. Somebody sells their house. Uh, there was just a story in, I think, the Wall Street Journal recently called the one-year millionaire. <laughs> so right. for one year, all of a sudden, it hits you. So that brings us to the capital gains rates, where, which is a preferred rate. You could pay 20%, 23.8%. They're thinking making that equal to ordinary rates, which can run over 40% if you add in that extra 3.8% tax on net investment income for higher earners. So if they made them the same, the only time that ever happened before was in the 80s. And I think it only lasted a couple of years. So that would take a lot of the planning off the table because where everybody tries to get capital gains, now it might be treated like ordinary income. I don't know if we'll see that. Uh, Then Probably the biggest change and the one that will uh, hurt a lot of people that weren't planning on it is the elimination of something called step up in basis for capital gains, for long-term capital gains. To uh, Just to give you a quick example, if you bought your home for, say, $100,000 many years ago and now it's worth $2 million, 
uh, th that gain would be relieved at death or, or a stock. You bought a stock for 100,000, now it's worth 5 million. Your beneficiaries pick it up at 5 million. All the income tax on that uh, appreciation is eliminated at death. So not only do they want to eliminate that big benefit for the appreciation, but they want to tax it at death or some other transfer as if you sold it. I think that's a nightmare waiting to happen, even though you didn't sell it. So where are you going to get the money to pay the tax just because it appreciated then at death? I, I think this is a loser provision. It would, it would be a mess. Plus, they would have to couple it and fix the estate tax because then you'd have it included for income and estate tax. And by the way, that may sound awful, but what I just described is an IRA. An IRA was always subject to income tax and estate tax, which is why I love Roth IRAs, at least it eliminates the income tax still included in the estate. So I think that may be a bridge too far, but if you're worried about that, maybe you wanna sell some of your winners now for the stocks, lock in today's low capital gain rates, and here's a nice play, use some of the proceeds from that to pay the tax on a Roth conversion. If you're worried about higher taxes in the future on your IRA, move more of that to the Roth. So use those proceeds to pay the tax on a Roth conversion. You may want to look at that. Uh, also on the estate tax side, estate and gift tax, we have a huge exemption now over $11 million, 11.7 million. There's talk of lowering that. Uh, so you may want to take advantage of using some of those, uh, some of that exemption now during lifetime, which it can still be used for the rest of 2021 through lifetime gifting, uh, we don't know where that's going to go next year. So you may want to lock in some of the things you know, the low tax rates, the low capital gain rates, and the large estate exemptions. Now, if you want to wait till the end of the year, because we don't know what's going to happen. A lot of this can wait till year end. But bigger assets like the sale of a business, you have to get the wheels going now. For example, if you want to sell a stock, the law comes in December 20th, let's say, all right, you push the button, I'm selling. But you can't do that on selling like a piece of land or a business. You know, you may want to get the process going if you're truly worried about that to the point where you can push the button right at year end or not, if it seems like it may not be an issue. But these are things everybody has to think about because this is what's uh, been proposed in a number of different bills in Congress, none of which may come to anything, but you never know. Well, that was my question, Ed, is I think investors, people wrestle with how preemptive to be in terms of making changes to their portfolios, selling things, gifting things, if none of this is a done deal. And well, I, it, it's yeah. not a done deal, but I don't believe personally, my own opinion, again, not a betting man, <laughs> my own opinion that anything drastic, like some of the things that I think are a little extreme are not gonna get passed because you have a 50-50 Senate. Uh, you know, you would need every Democratic senator to buy in. If one of them is sick, for example, it's not gonna pass. So it has to be something more moderate, more in the middle that everybody can get behind. So I don't think you're gonna see anything uh, extreme like some of the things I talked about actually get through. But I think they, if I had a bet again, they're going to do something because from the Democrats' point of view, and this is apolitical, I'm just saying, uh, 
if they don't do it now, nothing's going to happen in 2022. It's an election year and nothing's going to happen. So if they want to make the case that they did something, something's got to happen now. And to get that something to happen, they may have to give a little to get the 50 votes and go less extreme. People who are watching might be thinking, well, you know, he's talking about estate tax, gifting assets, all of this stuff is mainly relevant, they might be thinking, to people with a lot of money. You mentioned the very high estate tax exclusion currently. Is there relevance for people who don't have quite as much in assets in terms of some of these preemptive strategies? Yeah, it always falls on unintended people, like people who have a home, like I said before, that appreciated. Lots of people are in their homes for 30, 40 years. They have, look at the real estate market, incredible appreciation. Uh, these are these one-year millionaires. If they ever sold their home and they did it next year instead of this year, they could be losing half of what they would have had maybe if these proposals go through uh, what they would have kept after taxes this year so it's a big difference so even people that say of modest means that have a lot of money tied up in a home or a small business they don't consider themselves wealthy but at some point if they want to sell out they could be one of these one-year millionaires that gets trapped by these taxes supposedly on the wealthy. And that's the problem with it. A lot of this falls on unintended uh, taxpayers. Okay, Ed, really helpful information. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Christine. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. How can you supersize your Roth IRA balance? Joining me to discuss the mega backdoor Roth IRA is author and tax planning expert, Ed Slott. Ed, thank you so much for being here. Great to be back with you, Christine, thanks. It's great to have you here. Let's talk about this mega backdoor Roth IRA. Businessman Peter Thiel made headlines recently for getting 5 billion into a Roth IRA. Most people, don't have the strategies at hand that he was able to use, but there is a strategy that people can enlarge their Roth IRAs with, and it involves using after-tax 401k contributions. Can, can you talk about that? Because that does seem like that's the starting point for being able to get more funds into a Roth IRA than you would be able to get if you were just contributing the 6,000 per year um, that you're able to do. Well, first with the Peter Thiel, uh, he didn't do anything illegal. Remember, people think he had billions of dollars. You know, it's like the old joke, how do you become a billionaire? First, you have to have a billion dollars. And then, you know, uh, he didn't have a billion dollars. Back in 1999, he, he contributed the legal amount of $2,000, that's what it was back then, to his Roth IRA. He was under the income limit, so he was allowed to do it. Then he invested $1,700 of that $2,000. The $2,000 is the only money he ever put in a Roth IRA. And of course, it took off like a lottery ticket type of investment. It should only happen to everybody. So there's nothing wrong with what he did. So it got people thinking, as you say, how could I do that? Well, you, you know, unless you have that information and that uh, intuitive, uh, whatever it is that I don't, I don't want to say inside information, but unless you're a super investor and lucky, maybe too. Uh, 
that's probably not going to happen to you. But you can make it happen using the tax law through your employer's 401k. So that's the starting point for this something for this uh, thing we call the mega uh, backdoor Roth IRA, because there's a separate mega, there's a separate backdoor Roth IRA. This is the mega backdoor. So this involves being in a company plan, which means you have to be employed by a company. So there's a few obstacles here. It's not all it's cracked up to be. It sounds good because in some cases you can put up to $58,000 in, in an after-tax account in a company plan and then take it out and roll it to your Roth IRA tax-free, 58,000 a year. So there's a few hurdles. The biggest hurdle is uh, the company has to qualify. There are discrimination and testing rules to prevent higher income employees from sort of gobbling up all the benefits and leaving lower paid employees without the benefits. So there's discrimination rules uh, that some big companies can handle because they have a bigger pool of employees to get that average over more people. But a smaller company, like let's say you have a group of doctors or lawyers, maybe 10 people or so, uh, or a little more, but you have this wide gap between higher paid people and lower paid people, they probably wouldn't qualify under the discrimination testing. So that's one thing. You know who does qualify? People with no employees. You have a solo 401k, you don't have to worry about any of that. So if you have your own business and you have a solo 401k without any employees besides you or a spouse, uh, you don't have to worry about that hurdle. But assuming you get past that hurdle, the employer, the company, has to offer after-tax contributions. Now, they don't have to do it. Uh, it's optional. So that's the first test. Do they offer it? Many more companies are offering that. Then they have to allow in-service distributions even before 59 and a half. Not everybody offers that. Again, it's optional. And the third, probably the biggest hurdle, you have to have the disposable income to put that kind of money away. It sounds great. Oh, 58,000. Well, that's going to come from your own pocket. So you have to have that money available. If all these planets are aligned and you can do that, yes, you could put up to say 58,000. That's the amount for 2021 in an after-tax account in your 401k, assuming they allow it and all those factors I went through. And then if they have the in-service distributions, you could take that money out before it earns too much, roll it over to your own Roth IRA, and there you have all that money going into a Roth IRA, say 58000 a year, way more, like you said, than the 6000 limit or even 7000 limit if you're 50 or over. And unlike the Roth contributions, the six or 7000 which you may not qualify for if your income is too high. There is no income limit. You could be making a million dollars a year at the 401k and still qualify to put, say, this uh, up to 58,000 away in the Roth. And if you do qualify, say your income's under and you do qualify for Roth contributions, the six or 7,000, you could do both. Well, you referenced the after-tax contributions, and I think some people hear that and they think, well, that's the same as Roth contributions, which are also after-tax. Can you explain the difference in this situation and also whether or why one might fund the after-tax contributions in lieu of the Roth 
401k contributions. It seems like the Roth 401k contributions, at least making those, that should be the starting point, right? Well, I, as I said, you could do both if you qualify for Roth contributions. But let's say you do or you don't, it, that doesn't really make a difference. It's just an add-on. Look at the 401k plan, the average 401k, and they, are not, they don't all offer all of these options. But look at it like it has four separate baskets. You have the traditional 401k funds. That's what most people are used to. That's pre-tax. That money hasn't been taxed. You get a deduction going in. Then you have the Roth 401k, if they offer, and lots more companies do offer it now, that's after tax. But then they have these other two baskets, if they have it, the after-tax, which is not the Roth 401k, it's a separate after-tax account where you could load up and then do this mega backdoor Roth to your Roth IRA. And then there's a fourth basket most companies have for matching contributions that are always pre-tax. So yes, you could load up the Roth 401k, but you could only go up to the deferral limit, the 19,500 for 2021, plus another 6,500 if you're 50 or over. So if you wanna go up to the 58,000, you'd have to do it in that after-tax account if you wanna mega it, so to speak. So there's lots of options, but the bottom line is to mega uh, it, by mega we mean increasing it to the max, getting the 58,000 would have to involve uh, maxing out on that after-tax account, not the Roth 401k. It is confusing because they're both after-tax accounts, but the Roth 401k is limited to the deferral, the amount that comes out of your salary, which is 19.5 for 21 plus 6,500 if you're 50 or over. But that still leaves you somewhere around $38,000 you could put in the after-tax. Again, back to what I said earlier, if you have the disposable income to put in there. Right. That seems absolutely key. So you referenced this in-plan distribution feature. Um, what if a plan doesn't offer that? What are the options then and what are the tax consequences in, the, in that situation? Well, if they don't offer it, hopefully you could load up the Roth 401k for at least the deferral amount and maybe park that money in the after-tax account uh, until you're eligible for a distribution. But most companies, it seems now, I know there were some studies done recently by Fidelity, they said about 90% of their plans offer it. Uh, if they have the after-tax, one of the great features of the after-tax account, not the Roth 401k, is you could have in-service distributions and you don't have to wait till 59 and a half, which you might have to wait, say, in the other accounts in that plan. So you could be 40 and start doing this every year, taking advantage of the after-tax account and then rolling it to your own Roth IRA each year and putting in, essentially, if you have the money, up to 58000 in your Roth. And if you qualify for the contribution, maybe another 6000 Okay. So you referenced a few times, Ed, that this is for high income, heavy savers. You need to have a lot of income to be able to take advantage of this feature. It seems uh, like for people in that situation, they really have a fork in the road where they could do these after-tax 401k contributions, or the other option for the overage would be to simply save in a taxable brokerage account or something like that. So can you sort of talk us through which is the better option? Well, the better option is always going to be the after tax because that can go into a Roth and grow tax-free. Taxable accounts, even if you get 
uh, favorable capital gains rates still are going to be taxed, maybe at a lower rate. And we don't even know what the future on that is with pending legislation, but it will be taxed. Plus, you have administrative tax reporting. Every time you buy and sell, that's reported in a taxable account. You can buy and sell all day in a, in a retirement account in the after tax or in your Roth IRA, and that doesn't have to be reported anywhere. And when the money comes out, eventually, if you qualify to have it for five years and you're 59 and a half, it's all tax-free. So you can't beat a 0% rate. How about prior to age 59 and a half? Uh, can you walk us through someone's paid taxes on these funds, do they have access to them in any fashion prior to retirement age? Well, generally you have to have the five years of 59 and a half. Let's go back to the Peter Thiel story because it's not over yet. Everybody's talking about his 5 billion in his Roth IRA. But remember, Roth IRAs are included in the estate. Now, from what I understand, I may be off. I think he's 53, 54 years old. He can't touch any of that money in his Roth until he's 59 and a half, except his 2000. His 2000, he can get out because that's his contribution. You could always take that out tax and penalty free at any time for every any reason. So he has access to the 2000. The 5 billion, he'll have to wait. So maybe we'll set up like a GoFundMe page to get him, you know, as a bridge loan uh, to get him to 59 and a half or something. But he can't touch the rest of that money. It's all earnings uh, without tax and a penalty of 59 and a half. By then, it might be worth 10 billion. And if he lives a long and healthy life and he lives well into his 80s, let's say, could be worth 50 billion. But at some point, the government's going to get a good cut of that through estate tax. Well, Ed, great information as always. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Thanks, Christine. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. For charitably inclined older adults, a qualified charitable distribution often beats making a charitable contribution and deducting it on your tax return. Joining me to discuss the QCD, as well as what he calls the mega QCD, is author and tax planning expert, Ed Slott. Ed, thank you so much for being here. Great to be back with you, Christine, thanks. It's always great to have you here. I wanna talk about the qualified charitable distribution. Can you start by outlining what that is? It's one of my favorite provisions of the tax code, QCDs, Qualified Charitable Distributions. It's a way for people who give to charity anyway to get a tax benefit. Remember, most people don't get the tax benefit they used to since the law changed a few years ago and most people don't itemize and they take a standard deduction. So this is good for people that have IRAs and to get that money out literally at zero tax, which you can't do better than that. Actually, the only negative about QCDs is that it doesn't apply to enough people. It only applies to IRA owners and IRA beneficiaries who are 70 and a half years old or older. Now that's not an error, even though the SECURE Act raised the required minimum distribution RMD age to 72, it did not affect the QCD age. And here we are, we're getting into all these acronyms. It's like a different language. So you have this gap between 70 and a half and 72 before RMDs begin that you can still uh, do the QCDs. And what is involved there, it's a direct transfer. In other words, you notify your custodian, whoever it is, to move 
your IRA money directly from your IRA to your chosen charity direct. Doesn't come out to you, it goes direct to the charity and it's not included in your income where normally a distribution from an IRA would be included in your income. Now you don't get a deduction per se because you're not itemizing deductions, but you're getting better than a deduction. You're getting an exclusion from income. That's better than a deduction because it lowers your adjusted gross income, AGI, another acronym. And that's a key number on the tax return that determines the amount of benefits, deductions, and credits that you may be entitled to. So you referenced that there's this disconnect, the QCD age is 70 and a half, the RMD age is 70, 72. So why might someone who's 70 and a half want to consider this maneuver before RMDs actually commence? Well, to get a tax benefit out of donations you might make and this is for people, I'm not saying to make donations just to get a tax benefit. If I was saying that, then give all your money to charity and you'll never have a tax. But I'm talking about for making the gifts you're going to make anyway. You know, we're so entrenched in this habit of writing a check to the charity. And most people don't realize still they're not getting any tax benefit for it because they're not itemizing their deductions. So if you're giving to charity anyway, why not take it from an IRA? Remember, an IRA is a pre-tax account. It's money that has not yet been taxed. This is the best money on earth to give to charity because it's loaded with tax. So if you're giving anyway, and you qualify, remember, it doesn't qualify if you're in a 401k or another company plan, only from IRAs, and you actually have to be 70 and a half. If you're 70 and a half tomorrow, you can't do it today. You actually have to be 70 and a half, but it goes right to the charity and it's not included in income. Now, when you hit RMDs, some people use that to offset the income from their uh, required minimum distribution. So you coined a term called mega QCD. Can you talk about what that is? Some people who are familiar with the retirement planning rules are familiar with the mega backdoor Roth IRA. What's the mega QCD? <laughs> I made that up because everybody likes anything that has a tax benefit with the word mega in front of it. You know, whatever it is, I want mega. So you have the mega, I made up the mega QCD. It's actually an anomaly that's ending at the end of this year due to a, a couple of tax laws. The QCD I just talked about, again, only available to IRA owners, 70 and a half or older, but there's another limit you can only do, and this is enough for most people, but annually you're limited to 100,000 a year. What if you wanted to make more? Or what if you don't qualify for a QCD? Maybe you're only 50 years old. Maybe your money's in a 401k. There's a provision that's ending. It came in one of the laws late last year in one of these stimulus packages that says, if you itemize deductions, now before I said most people don't itemize because they don't have enough deductions to go higher than the standard deduction. But what if you really want to give a lot to charity and you itemize cash gifts are deductible only through the end of this year, 100% up to 100% of your AGI, your adjusted gross income. So here's the mega QCD. You could take from your IRA, 
let's say you want to give a million dollars for some reason. You have a multi-million dollar IRA and you want to give to charity. And I said, the IRA is the best money to give to charity. It's loaded with taxes. You could take a million dollars out of your IRA. Now that's a taxable distribution. It's going to add a million dollars to your AGI. But now that your AGI is higher, you could give a million dollars to charity to virtually offset the income on that IRA distribution and way bypass that $100,000 limit. Actually, you could do the QCD if you qualify, plus the mega QCD. So who benefits from this? People who don't normally qualify for the QCD because maybe they don't have an IRA, maybe they only have a 401k. This would work from a 401k if you're eligible for a distribution, or maybe they're not 70 and a half. Somebody watching now says, you know, I'm 65. I like to give to charity. I wish I could have that IRA deal, but uh, I'm not 70 and a half yet. You don't have to be for this. You can take money out of your IRA. It works a little differently. It will be added to your AGI, but then you could deduct that amount. And if it's large enough, it will bring you over to qualify for an itemized deduction over the standard deduction amount. So it's kind of an anomaly only for this year because that 100% limit which came out of the uh, stimulus bill, one of them, ends this year and it goes back to a different limit. So it's only available for the rest of this year. But if you like to give to charity and you wanna use the best assets there are to give with taxable assets, assets like 401ks or IRAs, this is the way to really mega your QCD. So that's why I called it the mega QCD. Now you made it official by Morningstar uh, bringing it to everybody's attention. Right. You referenced age 50, Ed. Can you talk about if, if someone's withdrawing from a 401k or an IRA? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. I said age 50. Forget that. Right. Don't do this before age 59 and a half because you might okay. have a 10% penalty. Excellent okay. point. Yeah, okay. I was getting carried away there. Yeah, only 59 and a half or older because if you take uh, from an IRA or 401k, uh, you may have a 10% penalty. That's a deal breaker to me because that's money going in the garbage. You never want to pay a 10% penalty. You also, another caution, don't do it from a Roth IRA. There's no tax benefit there. You already paid the tax. Good point. So scratch that. What I said before, if I used age 50 as an example, I should have said 60, uh, 59 and a half, but that's a, a great point. Don't do it before 59 and a half. Okay. But do act in 2021 because this window is, is closing within the next several right. months. Ed, thank you so much for being here to discuss the QCD and the mega QCD. <laughs> now it's official. Thanks. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. The SECURE Act ushered in new rules for inherited IRAs. Joining me to discuss what you need to know about that is author and tax planning expert, Ed Slott. Ed, thank you so much for being here. Great to be back with you, Christine, thanks. It's great to have you here. I'd like to discuss this new rule for inherited IRAs, the new rules that beneficiaries must follow following the passage of the SECURE Act. Can you talk about that? Well, this is important because it's effective now. Actually, it became effective in 2020, but most people 
most beneficiaries would start now for a death in 2020. That's when it became effective. And the big change that beneficiaries need to know about is something we used to call the stretch IRA. That was the ability for beneficiaries to defer over their lifetime. They could go out 20, 30, 40, 80 years for a two-year-old and stretch or extend the payouts on their inherited IRA over their lifetime. That ended beginning in 2020. So anybody who inherits in 2020 is under the SECURE Act and was replaced for the most part with something called a 10-year rule, which means instead of that long stretch or extended payout period, most non-spouse beneficiaries will have to empty their inherited IRAs or inherited Roth IRAs by the end of the 10th year after death. The problem or the confusion was when IRS released their signature publication on this 590-B. It's corrected now, but that's like the Bible. And it's normally a big non-event. It's just a wrap up of the new rules. These things come out every year. But they had an example in there telling people how the 10-year rule would work. And it was wrong. I think it was copied actually from a prior year. And they just upped the years, but didn't change it for the SECURE Act. Like the SECURE Act didn't exist. So all the estate attorneys, it was in all the professional conferences, they said, you know, IRS is saying under this 10-year rule, yeah, the beneficiaries have to start taking every year for 10 years. That is not the case. In May, they came out with what they call a revised updated. You know, they never say we, there's an error in there. An updated publication 590 that made it clear. They got rid of that example, actually replaced it with a worse example. But in other parts of the publication, they made it clear that under the 10-year rule, there, there are no required distributions for the 10 years except at the end of the 10th year. So the only required payout to beneficiaries is whatever the balance is at the end of the 10th year after death, that has to come out. But you can do whatever you want in the 10 years actually gives beneficiaries a lot more flexibility. They can do whatever they want in the 10 years. Maybe a beneficiary, let's say a son inherits at age 50, but he's still working, making a good income. So he's retiring maybe in three or four years. He's not gonna take anything while his income is high. And maybe he'll take distributions once he retires in years seven, eight, nine, and 10. So you have a lot of planning flexibility, but the stretch is gone for just about every beneficiary except the surviving spouse. There are some other exceptions. The surviving spouse is unaffected. They have the same rights and privileges, and that's good because most people that are married leave their IRA or Roth IRA or 401k to their spouse. There are four other categories of exceptions, people who still get the stretch, but it's not many people. One category is very confusing. It says a minor beneficiary. So people are saying, so what's the big deal? If the minor beneficiaries still get the stretch IRA, I'll leave it to my grandchild. They'll go out 80 years, not grandchildren. It has to be a minor beneficiary of the deceased IRA owner or deceased 401k participant. So for example, that's not going to be many people. If the average IRA owner dies, I don't know, at age 85, what's the likelihood of that person having a 12-year-old child? The only one I can think of is Tony Randall, and he's dead. So most other, it's not a, a common situation. You know where it'd be more common, a 40-year-old, unfortunately, 
actually dies early and has a teenager, but then there wouldn't be as much involved generally. So even with the minor beneficiary, if you have that situation, it's only up until they reach the age of majority, which is 18 in most states, or they can actually go till age 26 if they're still in school. But after that, they're back on the 10-year rule. So that's the minor category. That's why that's confusing, not grandchildren. Then you have disabled, chronically ill in this weird category of beneficiaries, uh, not more than 10 years younger than the IRA owner. People around the same age, a non-spouse, it'd be a partner, a friend, a brother, a sister. I guess Congress figured, ah, they're about the same age. Let them have the stretch IRA. How long are they going to live anyway. So those are the categories that are exempt that still get the stretch. But there's one more important category, anyone who inherited before 2019. So if you had a, if you left your IRA, well, you would be dead, but uh, in 2019, to your grandchild who was two years old, that grandchild can go out, uh, let's say they inherited, you died on December 31st, 2019. That grandchild can stretch it out if she lives long enough for 80 years. But let's say instead uh, you died on January 1st, the next day, 10-year rule. So you have to keep track of these two sets of rules. But here's the good news. This will only go on for about 80 years until all the people who inherited before 2020 are kind of washed out of the system. So uh, it is grandfathered for anybody who inherited before 2020, they still get the old rules. You've been talking mainly about people who inherit, but what about people who are planning? If their goal was for their loved ones, say their children, to be able to extend the tax benefits in the way that they were able to do under the stretch, is there any alternative that kind of simulates that same tax deferral or, or not really? Yeah, there are alternatives and that's what everybody's focusing on, the planners are, because what Congress did, they actually made IRAs and even Roth IRAs less valuable for wealth, trans they actually downgraded these accounts as far as wealth transfer or estate planning, which is exactly what they wanted to do. Congress felt IRAs or retirement accounts should be for retirement and not as an estate planning vehicle to pass on for generations. So they made it less valuable. So now the IRA is not the valuable asset. So it's like a, an old jalopy that is pooped out at death. So you got to get rid of that. You know, it used to be the vehicle that got you this big stretch IRA, but you're not married to it. Change the vehicle, get rid of the old IRA jalopy and get into maybe a limo for the rest of the ride, you know, a, a luxury limo. And there's ways to do that. One way is to start bringing down that IRA balance and it affects the people most affected are people with the largest IRAs because there's more more likely to pass on to beneficiaries that won't be spent during their lifetime. So you might look at lifetime Roth conversions to get that balance down. And even though the children or grandchildren might have to take it out in 10 years, the Roth isn't a bad asset. They could leave it there for 10 years, growing totally tax-free. They still have to get it out at the end of the 10th year, but all of that growth will be tax-free at the end of the 10th year. That's one option. 
Another option is to get rid of the IRA, not all, but everything in moderation, and maybe look to life insurance. Now, just so you know, I don't sell life insurance. I'm a tax advisor. I don't sell stocks, bonds, funds, insurance, annuities. But as a tax advisor, I have to tell you, the tax exemption for life insurance is among the single biggest benefits in the tax code, not used nearly enough. You could take down some of that IRA, assuming you don't need it, and it's meant to pass on to beneficiaries. And like you said, Christine, simulate that stretch IRA and then pay the tax and put the money into life insurance, which can be uh, given or left to a beneficiary directly or in trust if you're worried about the control or them blowing the money or squandering it or something like that, lawsuits, bankruptcy, all the things people worry about with their kids. And that can be customized to simulate the stretch or even better. Have your own, you remember with the life insurance, there are no stretch IRA rules, there are no RMDs, there's no tax rules and there's no tax. So that's one option for the charitably inclined charitable remainder trust. And the key is you have to have a strong charitable intent. Remember, uh, IRAs are the best assets for those charitably inclined people to give to charity. So instead of leaving it to your children, better off to leave them other non-IRA assets that they hopefully can get a step up in basis on and leave the IRAs to say a charitable trust. The IRA goes to the charitable trust at death, the charitable trust, a CRT, would pay income to your beneficiaries for a term of years or for life, and they would get these payouts, which can simulate a stretch IRA. But there's a warning there. I would never do that unless there was strong charitable intent and it was coupled with a backup life insurance policy. Because if that CRT beneficiary, your child or children, let's say, dies early, that's the deal. The money goes back to the charity. So you would want to have a, a life insurance policy on that beneficiary. So if the beneficiary dies early, at least the family is made whole and it's tax free. Also, you have to be aware there are no extra payments. For example, if a beneficiary is getting these monthly or annual payments from the charity, that's what they'll get. Now, some parents like that to control it. But let's say they need an extra 50 or 100,000 for some business, medical or financial emergency no deal. They only get the payments. So you have to take that into consideration. I think the CRT, the charitable remainder trust, is more for, say, a million dollar IRA or over. There's administrative trust taxes. It involves a lot, but it's one way to simulate the stretch IRA, have your charitable intentions uh, uh, flourish for, you know, with the IRA, the best asset to leave to a, a charity and take care of your beneficiaries to simulate the stretch IRA. Other than that, the best thing is to uh, use a lot of your IRAs through QCDs during life, the qualified charitable distributions, and get that money out at the lowest possible tax rate. Ed, you always bring such great information. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Christine. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest, 
or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.